Hey guys, before we get started, just wanted to let you know, this is our first episode that's going to have an extended cut available only on spinitpod.com. So if you're a big Pink Floyd fan or a big Spinit fan and would like to check out more, go ahead and click the link in the description or type spinitpod.com into your browser and check it out for yourself. Enjoy and keep spinning. Dark Side of the Moon is one of my favorite records of all time. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Spin It Podcast. I'm James, and with me, as always, is Connor, my co-host. Connor, say hello to the people. Hello, writing department. How y'all doing out there? Hopefully coming up with a catchphrase for us, because we sure don't have one. Yeah, not quite, but that's okay, because you're here, and you're better for us than they were. So this week, we are talking about Pink Floyd and the Dark Side of the Moon. Pretty popular record. Yes. When I was younger, okay, so this is going to be a weird story. Go for it. We're all about weird stories. So I don't know if you're a fan of the Transformers movies. I've seen one or two. Yeah. Have you seen the Transformers Dark of the Moon? Yeah, the one that's like four hours long and the four hour long movie is three hours too long. Yeah, yeah and not as good. <laughs> I always like in my head when that movie came out was like Dark of the Moon, Dark Side of the Moon. They're the same. And yeah, I don't know. There's always some weird parallel there. That was a weird story. <laughs> I just really need to get that off my chest. You're right. That was a really weird story because they're not related at all. They're not related at all other than similar names. Dark Side of the Moon is a really different kind of record from what we've looked at so far, so I'm really excited to talk about it. There's a lot of elements of it that aren't on anything we've talked about yet, so that's cool. Do you know anything about this album already? Like, going into it, what do you know about Pink Floyd and the Dark Side of the Moon? Um, I'm a pretty big rock listener, especially like older rock, you know. 70s, 80s. And so I've heard a lot of Pink Floyd songs, but I wouldn't consider myself like a Pink Floyd fan necessarily in the sense of like, you know, like the Pink Floyd fans out there are pretty diehard. Right. I know. I'm kind of nervous to be doing this episode. If you're a Pink Floyd fan, hello and welcome to the podcast. We hope we do you justice. Probably won't. Don't be so negative. (laughs) I'm more talking about myself. Oh, I'm sure I'll disappoint them in some way. I'm sure you already have. (laughs) But yeah, like I have listened to their super popular stuff, right? So I've heard The Great Gig in the Sky. I've heard Brick in the Wall, you know, things like that. But Pink Floyd isn't really known for their singles, right? They're known for their album pieces that they do, how they can like kind of make an album flow really creatively. And so not being the kind of person that listens to albums, I haven't really experienced that until now. I've just heard their big hit singles. Yeah. Yeah. Pink Floyd are real pioneers of the concept album as a work of art. Concept album. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, so a lot of their albums, especially the ones that follow Dark Side of the Moon, are mostly very cohesive. They kind of tell a similar story or are very thematically connected throughout. And you'll see that on a lot of the things they do from this point on. Which I really like. Yeah, and it's one of the features about listening to albums in their entirety that's really cool. Like, that's an experience that you just can't get when you take radio singles and play them. You know, you kind of have to have all the tracks put in the same place at the same time to really understand what they're trying to go for here. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of these songs that if I just heard it on the radio, I'd be like, what am I listening to (laughs) without the context of the rest of the album? Yeah, because they don't make any (laughs) sense. Good on them, though, for for doing it. They were like the first ones to do it successfully and like majorly. Yeah, an album like this. There have been concept albums before this one and plenty that have come after, but yeah. 
I mean, sure, but this is like a league of its own. Yeah, it's a, a landmark album in the history of album-based music. Let's talk about Pink Floyd, the band. There's kind of a lot of moving pieces. You know, all of the members of this band were very important and contributed in their own right. So I think I want to give a little bit more time to each of them individually. As we talk about the band, I know sometimes we just name them and move on, but each one of these deserves a little bit more of a dig. First off, we should talk about the founding five members of the band. Hit me with it. They got together in 1964. Hit me with them. I shall but gently, so you can continue the podcast. First off, let's talk about Sid Barrett, a very notable figure in the band. He played the guitar and the lead vocals when he was with Pink Floyd. He was pretty much, when he was there, their primary songwriter and the original frontman. He did a lot of the vocal work, not to mention a heck of a guitarist, but he ran into some pretty significant mental health problems. The band started to get concerned for his ability to keep playing with them, so he was let go from the band. And in his absence, the band picked up a new guitarist, David Gilmore to try and cover for him in 1967. Nick Mason was the band's drummer, and here's a fun fact, he's the only member of the band to feature on every single album. I think I read that he not only features on every album, but every song which is even more impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's been a, a cornerstone piece of the band as well. Definitely in terms of longevity and in terms of consistency, he's always put out good material for him. The next of the five founding members is a name that most of you probably have heard, at least a little bit. Roger Waters was the bassist for the band, and he also did many of the vocals while he was with them. Waters basically took up a lot of the creative reins after Sid Barrett left. He's pretty much to a large extent, the mastermind behind albums like Dark Side, like The Wall, Wish You Were Here, Animals, really big concept records. Pink Floyd's, I guess, Wonder Years, if you want to call them that. But he left the band in 1985 due to what might be called creative differences, and within the next three years, he would actually try and sue for the rights to use the band's name and material. They settled out of court. Weird. But he did, yeah, he did try and sue to be Pink Floyd. Interesting. Imagine, like, being part of a band and then leaving and then being like, your stuff is mine now. I'm out of here and I'm taking the band with me. <laughs> it's like the kid who is like, if you don't do it my way, I'm taking the ball home, you know. But he tried to do it with an entire band. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But next up is Richard Wright. He plays all the keyboards and also sings some occasional vocals. When all those lineup changes were going on in 1968, Richard Wright essentially became an arranger for the songs that Waters and Gilmore were writing. So he kind of took their compositions and figured out how he wanted them to sound on the record, where he wanted instruments to come in and just put them together that way. That was kind of his role. After The Wall, he decided to leave the band as a full-time member, but he did come back in 1994 for a stint. All these people leave in... For different reasons, it's like, how when when was Pink Floyd ever actually Pink Floyd? I mean, it seems like they were never all there at the same time, except for in the very beginning. No, you're absolutely correct. And uh, even in the very beginning, mostly due to this last fellow we're going to talk about, the fifth founding member of Pink Floyd was Bob Close. And he was a guitar player, but he was a really short-term member. He left the band of his own accord in 1965. And that's like a year, right? Yeah, he didn't stay for long. He was more of a jazz blues kind of guy instead of this psychedelic prog rock direction that the band was taking and i feel like he has no regrets about leaving if that's the kind of music he wanted to play minus the like fame and popularity he could have had he's on this podcast how much more famous could you be what more could you want yeah you know what you're right bob close how's it feel to know you've peaked <laughs> <laughs> oh no 
Again, I'm sorry to all the Pink Floyd fans out there. <laughs> so that's pretty much Pink Floyd, all the members, the five founding members, and then David Gilmour, who came in later. And like I mentioned, they were founded in 1964, and that lasted until 1995, their first run. And in 1995, things kind of fell apart. We weren't even born yet. That's true. Pink Floyd was a band and then not a band before I was even born. And now they're on our podcast. Pink Floyd, how does it feel to know that you've peaked? <laughs> I was going to say it. <laughs> I was just giving it a pause. <laughs> Gosh. They took a break in 1995, but in 2005, they reunited for a one-show-only reunion called Live Aid, which is a play on the famous Live Aid concert that was hosted by the same people 20 years earlier. In 2012, David Gilmour and Nick Mason got back together, and they compiled what would be Pink Floyd's final album, The Endless River, in 2014. 2014? Yeah, I know, recent. But it was made of some older material, some other things that they had done, so... I was gonna ask if it was literally just a two of them. One of them's Pink and one of them's Floyd now. The notable thing about that record is that Roger Waters was not involved at all. Well, at the time they released this last album, David Gilmour said, I think we've successfully commandeered the best of what there is. It's a shame, but this is the end. That is a shame. It is, but I also think it's really awesome that he can recognize that Pink Floyd as a band has literally like commandeered the best of what there is. Pretty bold claim. It's a bold claim, but I don't think he's necessarily selling himself too short. He's definitely commandeered most of what there is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just the sign of a man who's proud of his work with this band, who's put out music that he's really satisfied with. And I think that makes it more enjoyable to listen to, you know? You don't want to listen to music where the person who's made it hates it. Well, over these five decades that they were kind of on again, off again active, they have sold more than 250 million records worldwide. Pretty good. Yeah, actually, Waters, Gilmore, and Mason are each presumed to be in the top 50 richest musicians, with an estimated 286 million pounds between them, which, for all of our American listeners, that's about $390.4 million. A lot of dollars. Just a bit, yeah, just a few dollars. <laughs> Listen, if I had a dollar for every dollar that they had, I'd have $390.4 million. That's You're right, yep. Pink Floyd is number 51 on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Artists of All Time list. Interesting. They didn't make top 50%. Well, no, but also 51 is nothing to sneeze at. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996, and they've won Grammys for the audio engineering work that was done on their later record, The Wall. And in addition to all that stuff, they've just been inspirations for so many different artists. Tons of them cite Pink Floyd as influences, including David Bowie, The Edge from U2, Queen, Radiohead, Stephen Wilson, Nine Inch Nails, The Smashing Pumpkins, all of them have cited Pink Floyd as decently significant influences. Now, if you've somehow missed the chance to listen to this iconic record to this point in your life, let me be the first to say... Shame on you. Yeah, shame on you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I will say, you should go listen to it right now. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff on this episode, and you will gain a lot more if you go listen to this album. I think this is an album, the first one that we've talked about at least, that I would say is a must-listen. Not counting Dua Lipa, right? Because Dua Lipa was our first must-listen. Oh, sorry. I forgot my present company. <laughs> Dua Lipa, yes. Dark Side came out in 1973, and it's very psychedelic rock, kind of the prog rock album to end all prog rock albums. And it's Pink Floyd's eighth album, and I think it's probably the earliest album that a non-Pink Floyd fan would be able to name off the top of their head. Am I wrong in saying that? 
I could only probably name two. So yeah, I'm not a Pink Floyd fan, so yeah, I guess that tracks. Right. Well, it was preceded by Obscured by Clouds a year earlier in 1972, and this record marks the beginning of a really explosive decade for the band. They released Dark Side in 73, and then they did Wish You Were Here in 75, Animals in 77, and The Wall in 1979. So those are a couple of huge records there. Here's some fun facts about the album. They actually put a lot of this record together live. While they were touring before the album recording sessions, they created and shaped a lot of these songs. So tons of people got to hear bits and pieces of Dark Side before it ever even existed. Yeah, they're known for their live albums. Dark Side was certified 14 times platinum in the UK, and in the United States, it charted for 958 weeks on the Billboard charts. That's a lot of weeks. That's a lot, a lot of weeks. Here's a fact for you. This is another point in the show where I'm going to try and make you guess something because I've really had fun doing that. That's my job. And by my job, I mean the mixtapers job. Well, be that as it may, it's my job right now. So there's a movie out there that people say syncs up perfectly with Dark Side of the Moon. If you start the album and the movie at the same time, there's supposed to be all kinds of coincidences and things that line up. Do you know what movie? Can you guess which movie it lines up with, allegedly? And you said the Dark Side of the Moon, right? Yes. That one would be The Wizard of Oz. That's true. Dark Side of the Moon and The Wizard of Oz, supposedly go together if you talk to the right people. The theory is often referred to as the Dark Side of the Rainbow or The Wizard of Floyd, which is an objectively lamer title. I like this. But the band, like you said, they wholeheartedly deny any connection. Well, if you're curious about that, you can line the two up for yourself and try it and then let us know that it doesn't work. But you can't get mad at us when it doesn't work because we're telling you right now that that does not really hold any water. But you're allowed to try it. Or maybe it does. In which case, get mad at us for that. Who's to say? So that was my turn to make you guess. So now I guess it's my turn to guess. So let's bring on the mixtaper and we'll play Fact or Spin. If you're new to the show, or you just need a refresher. Factor Spin is where the mixtaper gives me a fact and I have to determine whether it's true or something that's totally bogus that he's made up. Hey, it's me. I hear you're trying to steal my job. Well, I'm not trying to steal your job. I just like to make Connor guess things. I, I got some good ones today. I'm hoping to stump you finally. I've yet to get you to miss them all. That's true. If today's the day I miss them all, I'm going to be a little embarrassed, but I'm prepared for that eventuality. I'm actually a little concerned you're going to know them all. Pink Floyd's a pretty well-known band. <laughs> well, hit me with your best shot. Let's see what you got. Pink Floyd used colored condoms in their stage shows. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's start with the first question that I think should be the first question answered. Use them for what? <laughs> visual effects. Okay, did, like, when you say visual effects, did they, like, inflate them as if they were balloons or something? No. Well, there goes that theory. <laughs> What'd they do? What were the visual effects that they made? Well, this was early in their career before they had much of a budget for the visual effects that they're now well known for. Uh-huh. They would put them over their lights to create colored lights. Oh, that's it. I thought it would be something more of like a like a one-time showy bit during one of the songs where they would like fall from the ceiling or something. <laughs> Just raining colored condoms. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so they're using them in a more practical sense. Yeah, they couldn't afford a bunch of different colored lights and color changing light like technology stuff. So they kind of did it manually with colored condoms that went over the lights to make them look different colored. They seem to work really well, according to them. Huh, okay. Uh, I guess it would work. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. But did they work it? How big were these lights? I mean, have you seen the videos of people stretching and filling condoms with water and stuff? Those things stretch like crazy. That's true. But the thing is, the more you stretch it, the thinner the 
material is going to get and the less color it will provide to your light. I would imagine they were probably stage lights and they would just stretch them over like the lens part. Did they not melt? Didn't they get hot on there? That was my concern is that they would have melted in some way, but I guess not. I feel like that would work. Yeah. And that would be a viable solution to your problem. I just don't know if Pink Floyd did it. I'm going to say spin. I'm starting off with a spin this week. You're going with spin. I don't usually start with spin, but I think this one's fake. I don't usually start with spin, but when I do, I'm wrong because this is a fact. Oh no, come on. Yep, this is a fact. They did it. All right, well, that's a way to start the afternoon, I suppose. Yeah. Next, we're going to go with Pink Floyd has an animal named after one of their albums. Okay, they own the animal? No, no, like the animal species is named after them. Oh, a whole species is named after one of the... Yeah. That's... Uh, not the fact that I thought it was off the bat. I thought you meant like somebody named their pig animal after animals, the album. And I was like, well, that's not fun. Okay. A whole species. Which species is it? Is it one that I would recognize if I saw it on the street? Um, I'm going to give you the album that it's named after and then you're going to guess the species. Hate that. Sure. Okay. (laughs) It really doesn't make any sense because there's no way you're going to get it. But it's the 1969 album, Uma Guma. No, there's no way I'm going to get that. Are you kidding? (laughs) What animal species is called Umaguma? <laughs> I will tell you though, the album title Umaguma is all one word. The species is two words, Umaguma, if that helps. It doesn't. <laughs> what if I gave you region? Uh, that might help a little bit. It was discovered in Africa. Is it some kind of a, like a feline animal? No. Is it some kind of bird? No. It's a damselfly, which is a type of insect. A fly? There, I guess damselflies is like a category of insects. And then within there, there's different species of them. And I discovered a new species of damselfly and decided to name that species Umaguma. You're telling me there's a damselfly species named Umaguma after this Pink Floyd record? In Africa, discovered in 2015. Oh, that's a late discovery why did it take them so long to discover umagumas man hard to find good at hiding umagumas are good at hiding deceptive there's no way this is true it sounds to me like you just looked at their album titles and said umaguma what can i do with that oh let's make it an animal (laughs) but what animal hasn't he heard of oh a newly discovered fly i'm going with spin because i just can't wrap my head around that being real you're going with spin i can picture you making it up way easier than i can picture it being true Well, this fact is true, and there's a link to it. (laughs) Are you kidding me? You didn't make that up? I did not make that up. That's so make-uppable. Insane. That blows my mind. You've really got me on that one, Mixtaper. Kudos. Aha! And we're just going to stop there, because I'm I'm too up on you. I'm just going to stop. I don't think you should do that. (laughs) All right, yeah, we'll do another one. Well, my next one for you, another kind of ridiculous sounding one. Sid Barrett burned down his childhood home, or so he thought. Oh, there's too much ambiguity in this. So right off the bat, he didn't do it. No. Okay. Did he think this after he started having mental health problems? No. This is when he was six years old. Oh, (laughs) when he was six? Yeah. What did he do that he thought left his house in ashes? Playing in the kitchen. With what? Like a gas stove or a lighter? How did he drop something, a match? His sister's model kitchen playset. You're telling me that Sid Barrett thought he burnt down the house when he left the Easy Bake Oven on for too long. (laughs) 
Yeah, pretty much. Why? What did, did he leave it running and just thought that it started a fire? Like, did he smell smoke? Was he somewhere else and just thought the house had burnt down? So the house actually caught fire. The, ha- the house actually burnt down. Oh, yes. The house actually <laughs> burned down. Yes. That's a crucial element that I was missing. Okay. And he just felt guilty for it because he had left the Easy Bake Oven running. All right. <laughs> he heard the firefighters tell his parents that the fire seemed to start in the kitchen. And so he thought it was something he did that caused the fire. Oh, okay. That's better. I'm starting to orient myself around this fact. <laughs> what actually started the fire? It started in the kitchen. So it was probably some sort of either stove was left on or some sort of faulty wiring. I don't know. It didn't say. Okay. He kept quiet about it for a few weeks, the little criminal, before finally confessing to his parents, who then had to laugh and explain to him that no, he did not cause the fire that burned down the house. Well, I would be quiet about that too. Imagine how guilty he must have felt. I think this fact is I feel it again. This is the bias where I want this fact to be true. And so I'm going to say it's true. This is a fact. This fact is also spun. No, man. Yeah, made it up. You really didn't ask as many questions as I was afraid you were going to. I had double checked that children's model kitchen play sets were being made back then. I double checked that he had a sister and that they were younger than him. And I double checked a lot of information before I gave you this and you didn't ask about any of it. I was just so blown away. I was bewildered by the nature of the fact. (laughs) It did take you most of the fact to realize the house actually did catch fire. Yeah, well, you never know. Sometimes when you're six... six, Six-year-old Sid Barrett dangers go like, oh, no, the house has been burned down. Well, sometimes when you're six, you know, you worry that something like that might have happened if he was, like, on a vacation and was thinking he left it plugged in. I don't know. I did not consider that the house had actually burned down. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, His house didn't burn down as far as I'm aware. I made that part up too. Nothing in there was true. Totally fake. All right. My final fact, Pink Floyd makes money from the Broadway show Spam-A-Lot. <laughs> okay, here's the thing about this. I don't know for certain about this, but I know that Pink Floyd were big fans of Monty Python. And I know that Spam-A-Lot, right, is kind of a parody of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. King Arthur, it follows a similar vein to all of that. It's kind of, it's the adaptation of it, but like not a complete accurate adaptation. It's based off of it, I guess. Yeah, inspired by, based off of the same, it's a derivative work. Sure. Let's see, what kind of royalties do they get from it? Is it for music? Is it for characters and like intellectual property what parts are they getting kicked back for it's for helping fund monty python and the holy grail yeah so it is just for giving money to the original how much money did they give to monty python and the holy grail i know they gave some but i didn't ever figure out how much they gave twenty one thousand pounds which adjusted for inflation would be an investment today of about £224,000. That's insane. That's so much money. Yep. And I know that Holy Grail was a movie that was shot on a really tight budget, so I'm sure that made a world of difference. Yeah, uh, the writers joked that even with all the donations they got, they still didn't have enough money for horses. Pink Floyd isn't the only musicians to contribute money either. In fact, the majority of that film was funded by musicians, especially British ones. Really? Who else is on the bill? Uh, Led Zeppelin contributed £31,500. Wow, yeah. Ian Anderson, frontman of Jethro Tull, put up $6,300 of his own money. I like Jethro Tull. And then others include people like Elton John and even George Harrison. Awesome. 
That's so cool. I didn't realize that the Holy Grail was such a GoFundMe, a crowdfunding of musicians. Yeah, and all of them get royalties for Spamalot, or so the fact says. Yeah, there is a there is a fact at the core of this that I have to decipher, isn't there? It's not just a fun anecdote. Maybe none of these people gave any money. Maybe they all hated Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I hope that's not true. I'm going to say that, yes, it's true. That fact is indeed true. Yeah. All right. Great. Man, I really get you in the beginnings, and then as it goes on, I just do worse and worse. I think I get more comfortable with it as time goes on. I settle in, and I, I hone in more on what's true and what's weird. But thanks for coming on and hosting, as usual, yeah. Mixtaper. Dr. Mixtaper. Dr. Mixtaper, that's right. Yeah! <laughs> and that sound means he's officially left. So, welcome back to Connor. Everyone say hi. Hey, I went and got a bowl of ice cream during that. Let's talk about cover art on this album. If you haven't seen the cover art, you've seen the cover art. Yeah, there's no way you haven't. I I am absolutely certain. It's probably the most instantly recognizable and iconic album cover of all time. Or at least it's in the upper echelon of the greats. I mean, I don't know a single person from my childhood who didn't seem to have one of those shirts with that logo on it, and most of them had no idea who the band even was. Like, that logo was just everywhere on shirts and things. Uh Uh-huh. The logo, I'll describe it for you anyway, just in case. It's a triangle, a prism in the middle, and a white light comes in from the left side and a rainbow is emitted from the right side of the prism and that's all it is it's this refraction of light into a rainbow well in the early days of this album it did not have a cover yet and richard wright requested a simple and bold design so richard wright takes this simple and bold idea to artist storm thurgerson he came up with this concept where there's the prism he came up with that design well thurgerson worked with the band extensively on other album covers and graphics and artwork that they needed but he also did work for led zeppelin fish black sabbath genesis yes kansas i mean all kinds of bands and he was even the best man in david gilmore's 1994 wedding i think this is an excellent cover for the album because of the way it kind of plays with light and dark this idea of bending light fits really well with dark side of the moon and eclipse that we'll talk about at the end it's very simple very thematically relevant and it's just striking it's just good well with all that nonsense let's jump into the actual album (laughs) now it's time to officially dig into the album yes like we mentioned dark side of the moon is a concept album that really kind of explores the human experience. The record begins as it ends with a heartbeat. That's the majority of the first track. (laughs) It's the heartbeat. That's right. Speak to Me is the first track, and it is mostly that heartbeat for a long time. This one starts off with a bunch of weird sound effects, too. A bunch of things that kind of hint at and foreshadow things that are coming later on in the record. There's a cash register that hints at money. That doesn't, and again, you say starts. You say starts, but it really doesn't pick up till already halfway through the song. Yeah. It's really just a heartbeat. The entire first 30 like seconds. Yeah, I know. Well, it's not a very long song at that. Roger Waters pretty much called this song the album's overture. He calls it a taster for all of the music that's to follow. And it really is. I mean, you get a taste of the voices. You get a taste of some of the sound effects that will come later. Just a bunch of little Easter eggs that you could pick out that really tie this song to the rest of the album. Uh, let's talk about the laughing, though. Yeah, there is this maniacal laugh at the end. And this is just the first of several times that it shows up. Yeah, gets me every time. What's so funny, Pink Floyd? Listen on the joke. I don't know about the joke, but 
you know a lot of those random voices that are heard throughout the album that kind of say some weird random things yeah to capture those instead of doing a traditional interview with someone they basically put up a bunch of question cards on a podium in front of the microphone and the questions would range from things like what's your favorite color to what do you think of the dark side of the moon or do you ever feel like you've been going mad and they would pull random people from all around the studio to just read those questions and give a response so some of these vocals that we'll hear some of these random snippets of dialogue will be from other engineers they'll be from roadies they'll be from security guards and doormen at the studio and that's where all of that comes from that's crazy that's so weird weird thing to do it's cool right on this very first track they introduce this idea of madness and it instantly solidifies itself as one of the core themes that they'll explore for the next 43 minutes the voice says, I've always been mad. I know I've been mad. Like most of us have. Very hard to explain why you're mad, even if you're not mad. You know, it, it that gets drilled into your brain right from the beginning. The other thing that you start to notice right away on this track is the way that it sweeps back and forth from ear to ear. It's the first album that we've really mentioned this on, but that's called The Pan. The pan is how much of an instrument is on your left side or your right side. And it plays a huge part in the way that you experience this album. Uh-huh. Yeah, so when you're listening through it, if you haven't already, or if you're going to do it again, listen for times that they play around with the left and the right audio channels, that something will almost cross over from your left ear to your right ear, or vice versa. It happens so many times, and it really contributes to the psychedelic vibe that they've set up, and it just makes for some really cool moments. And then this song is one of the ones that connects very seamlessly with the one that follows it. The next track is Breathe, parentheses, In The Air. Sometimes this song gets combined with Speak To Me, and so on those versions, you might just see it called Breathe. You know, you'll see speak to me slash breathe but most places that you'll find it digitally it's called breathe in the air what did you think of breathe in the air it's the first song song on this album you know in in any way that you might define a song well it starts off it transitions like very smoothly from speak to me and it's got that weird like calling that kicks it off yeah so that's instantly what's going on and then it goes from that directly into this very melodic melody that i personally really like yeah i think the combination of all of the instruments in the beginning is absolutely perfect there's the wavy guitar the really simple but really full bass sound there's a really crisp drum beat it's mastered very very well so that each of these parts gets a chance to shine you can hear them all cleanly it's not muddled it's just very well executed yeah it's almost like each instrument is kind of just existing doesn't really care what the other instruments doing it's just living its life yeah exactly yeah i said this entire track feels like one big sigh it really parallels breathing in the air oh that's a good term yeah it flows so smoothly it's actually just like listening to this big Yeah, it's like a big release of breath. Yes, it's a big release. I can't tell if it's exhausted or relieved or what the sentiment is behind it, but it's definitely got that breathing vibe. It's almost like you were holding your breath, right? You were like someone trying to get you to relax or calm down and they're like, take a deep breath, hold it now release sort of thing it's like you're in the release stage yeah that's very accurate i love the way the lyrics are so poetic and existential right off the bat the chorus is really good yes long you'll live and high you fly and smiles you'll give and tears you'll cry and all you touch and all you see is all your life will ever be 
And the melody behind that really kind of takes you down slowly, piece by piece, as you descend from this image of long you live, high you fly. And you just go down past all the smiles and all the tears to this blunt realization that all you touch is all your life will ever be. There's nothing more to life. It's very nihilistic in a way. Your experience is your life. Nothing outside of that matters. And then when you're gone, your long life and high flight will just inevitably take you back to the same rock bottom. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't know. It's also like telling you to just live your life, not to just coast but yet not also to worry. It's like this weird middle ground because verse two does this thing where it kind of says run rabbit run dig that hole forget the sun and when at last the work is done don't sit down it's time to dig another one. So it's like still telling you to keep digging and keep working but also ignore like the courses are telling you to kind of just don't fret about how big your life is going to your life's going to be what it is yeah i don't know it's hard to tell what message they're going for here the run rabbit run bit for me it kind of felt like digging your own grave to be honest digging yourself into darkness forget the sun and then when that work is done don't sit down it's time to dig another one like the work's never done you're going to be grinding and digging at your own grave until the day that you die you know what i mean it's just a strange dichotomy to navigate but let me say I cannot stress enough how much I love the organ that starts blaring as they sing Run Rabbit Run. Oh, it gets me every time. Yes, so good. It's just a huge sound. Well, one thing that I thought was awesome is that they use this whole bit about the rabbit, Run Rabbit Run, and then they bring it to Racing Towards an Early Grave, and then this song rolls right into On the Run. Again, another very smooth transition. Like Speak to Me, On the Run is another track without any singing. Now, there are some more bits of recorded voices throughout, although they're fewer and farther between. So let's hit those real quick, and then we could talk about the music. The first thing that comes in is an airport announcement over, like, a PA system, and I think that's just brilliant. You know, to follow up a song about how high you fly with this kind of mundane clip that simultaneously reminds you of flying, but also brings you straight back into boring reality, it's just genius. Also, where are you going to find a more time-sensitive, stressful environment than an airport? Exactly. Yeah, it's chaos. It's constant hustle and bustle. Literally everybody in the airport is on the run. They're trying to get somewhere. Heaven forbid you checked a bag and have a layover flight and your first flight got delayed. Nothing's more stressful. Everybody's been there. The only other piece of dialogue in the song is another recording from their question cards. And it says, live for today, gone tomorrow. That's me. And it feels like a sentiment that says, I gotta be on the run now because I won't be able to be on the run later. We're all on our way out. One of the things that really adds to the urgent feeling of this track is the drums. They're just driving the entire time. To me, what was really driving the like on-edge feeling is just how fast the lines of the what, synthesizer are going. Yeah. I watched a video once on how they created that synth arpeggio. Essentially, what they did was they played it really slowly into a sequencer, which is meant to repeat that same pattern over and over. And then sped it up. Yeah, and then they cranked up the playback speed until it matched the tempo of the song. I think it's really fascinating. I didn't care for it. Really? I mean, I guess you're not supposed to love it. It was purely instrumental, right? And it's three minutes and 45 seconds. Like, if it had been a minute five, like, speak to me, it would have been great. But it just was very long. (laughs) I'm not surprised that you, who can't stand repetitiveness, got a little bit tired of that synth. I mean, almost four minutes, it just... Well, here's some more weird recording techniques that they used in this song. Several of these effects are created with backwards guitar parts. They would record it on a normal tape, and then when they would play it back, it would be in reverse. They'd reverse it. So they'd record it one way and then... And then play it back backwards. 
Yeah. Why not just play it backwards from the beginning? Because it sounds totally different. Does it? Yeah. When you hit a guitar string, there's a hard start point. Okay. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So when you play it backwards, it kind of like sucks back up into the sound. It's a hard thing to describe unless you're listening to it. That, That makes sense. But the real novelty of it was that they didn't play the guitar as they did it. They dragged a microphone stand across the neck of the guitar. And it's the wailing sound that comes in at about a minute and 55 seconds. And it sounds just like this screech almost it's a microphone stand getting slid across the fretboard and then reversed interesting that'll do it yeah it's insane that they even thought to put that on the record and again this is another song that plays with the pan a lot it leans heavily on the left and right movement there are footsteps running all around this airport and engines going off and planes landing taking off everything's happening around you and you can hear it move from ear to ear as it goes Sometimes the footsteps run from one direction to the other, and you just really feel like you're sitting there in the middle of it, getting caught up in the hustle and bustle. Indeed. And then, at about three minutes into the song, there's this big explosive sound, and the entire thing sort of falls apart. And out of the echo of the aftershock, we hear this last few running footsteps. Like, I kind of got the impression that this dude has survived death against all odds until all of a sudden everything blows up in his face. It's just another moment that really represents this nihilistic end of life. And then all of a sudden, there's a bunch of ticking, a ton of ticking, like a lot of clocks. And that's a pretty good indicator that we're about to move into the next track, Time. It's time to move into the next track. Yes, clever. Time is the only track where all the members of the band share the writing credits. That's a fun fact. It starts with this really, I mean, just chaotic assortment of alarm clocks going off for the first almost 40 seconds. I didn't think it was that chaotic. Really? It might not be super chaotic, I guess. but No, it's pretty chaotic. <laughs> Especially coming off of the end of On the Run. Yeah, where everything's quiet and it's just footsteps. Uh-huh. It really wakes you up. Alan Parsons, the engineer for this album, actually made the recording of all the clocks prior to the band recording this track. As they were getting started, he brought the idea to them, and they loved it. They said, oh, you've got clock recordings? Do tell. Like, throw them on the record. How does that come up in conversation? Oh, you have clock recordings? Like, you're just like, hey, guys, you want to see my clock recording? Check this out. (laughs) There's another relentless metronome click here and some very ominous bass. It almost sounds like a dark version of Breathe in the Air, which makes sense to me because the songs share so many thematic connections. Right? Time is wasting, life is short, dig your grave until you don't need to. Yeah, uh, I like the instrumentals on this one better, though. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the other week that you like songs that build slowly over time, and I think this is a great example of that. Uh Uh-huh. The vocals and the more upbeat drums and stuff, they don't come in until after two minutes. In the first verse, David Gilmour and Richard Wright do the lyrics. They hand them off back and forth. Gilmour sings, kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to show you the way. I just like the idea of waiting for someone or something to show you the way. Like, you're looking for the way. You'll take anything from anybody from any direction. You're just looking for something. He really does a good job of conveying that kind of desperation in this lyric. Yeah, this is just one of those put your windows down and put your sunglasses on, crank the radio and groove down the highway. Especially when it gets to the part where the lyrics are. The beginning, not so much. Right, yeah. Drive down the highway with your alarm clocks blaring through (laughs) your windows. Everyone's going to look at you like you're a nut. Especially when you get to the tired of lying in the sunshine part. Yeah, that's Richard Wright's part. He sings tired of lying in the sunshine, staying home to watch the rain. Like you're tired of everything. It's just very gloomy. He sings, you were young and life is long and there's time to kill today. That's just a gut punch of a line. You haven't lived much of your life yet, but there's so much more life ahead. You've just got to keep killing time. you got a lot of time to kill. Yeah, again, this this kind of message that it's not all about planning for tomorrow or stressing about tomorrow or what's next. 
take time to just kill the day, right? To enjoy the day, do nothing, have a lazy day. Too much stress and worry gives you a short life. Yeah. And then there's this really trippy guitar solo because it's kind of two solos happening at once. There's a lot going on with the main guitar, but there's a second guitar also very prominently going to town. On the stereo mix, I kind of heard it on the left side. So listen for that. And it's doing something totally different than the main guitar. Man, in the second verse, one of my notes says that Gilmore can just yell these lines so well. His sections feel so bitter while everything Wright sings feels really more resigned to the reality of things. Because he yells... You run and you run, by the way, when he said you run and you run, I was like, oh, just like the rabbit. But he goes, you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up back behind you again. And then when it does, he sings, the sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath and one day closer to death because you're forced to be on the run day to day chasing after the sun. It's just a a line that is so good at combining everything that they've discussed so far in one succinct little image. Yeah, it's really good. I kind of just, as you were describing that, had a thought about the album art. Yeah. And about this idea of you have the one beam going into the prism, right? That then scatters out into the different rays of colored light, right? Yeah, that's how prisms do. Right. The sun, right, is it emits light. That would be the light going into the prism. And then it's like scattering away. And like the scattering... It's more scrambled. It's like racing away from the prism out in many different directions, which is kind of what they're warning you against doing in a way right here. They're saying, don't scatter yourself. Don't worry. Don't race on and on. I don't know, it just feels like there could be some sort of interesting symbolic metaphor going on there that maybe wasn't as intentional if they were just going for a simple and pretty album art, but kind of somehow is there still if you're like in an english class (laughs) yeah i know let me speculate on that for a little bit i kind of like what you're going for with the singular light coming in and everything coming out because they talk so much about all you touch and all you see is all your life is so everyone's got these different experiences and these different lives but they all originate from the same starting point from that same heartbeat that's the beginning of the album you know You start with a heartbeat, you end with a heartbeat. Yeah, it might be used to represent how we all kind of start at square one, but then our lives diverge into such different paths. Somewhere in there, something is correct. (laughs) Somewhere in there, there's something that's clever. This is where Spin It Writing Department, our fans, you get to interpret that however you want to, and we won't even be mad. Well, we might be a little mad if it's better than what we came up with, a little jealous. Yeah, we'll be jealous, but not mad. What does that interpretation have that ours doesn't? (laughs) Are we just not enough for you? (laughs) But Wright comes back in after that shorter of breath and one day closer to death. He comes back in with a softer response. Every year is getting shorter, never seen to find the time. My favorite line in this part of the song is he goes, The time is gone, the song is over. Thought I'd have something more to say. Like, wow, you know, at the end of your life, the song is over. And maybe you meant to do more with it. Maybe you had more to put into the song, but that's it. That's all the time you had. So if you never got it to where you think it should be, that's kind of on you. And at the end, there's a very clever reprise of Breathe in the Air. People compare these last couple lines to a funeral. You know, I'm not 100% sure that's what they're going for, but there's an undeniable shift in tone during the breathe reprise yeah i'm not quite sure what the softly spoken magic spells would be because i get the rest of it roger waters is a pretty outspoken atheist so people kind of speculate that that's a, a backhanded jab at religion a little bit and if it is death at the end of this song that plays really really well into the next song the great gig in the sky yes which would be probably the most well known song on the album you think it is i think it, it probably is i think it is yeah, as a non 
hardcore Pink Floyd fan, it would have been one of only a few songs I could name the title of. Well, there you go. Yeah. Like, I've heard Time. I recognized it when we were listening to it. I didn't know it was called Time. This one, you could have started playing. I would have like, oh, the great gig in the sky. That's true. It is really popular. And this one has a cool little story behind it, too. A little anecdote. Richard Wright took most of the writing credit for this one. And for a long, long time, he was the only writer. There was a dispute that came up, though. Because this track, it features some really iconic wailing vocals. And those vocals were provided by a woman named Claire Torrey. She was 25 at the time. And engineer Alan Parsons brought her in to put vocals on the track. In her own words, she says they played the song for her and she asked them what they wanted her to do. And the band's response was, we don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Roger Waters claims to have said, there's no lyrics, it's about dying, have a bit of a sing on that, girl. Like, I can't imagine the pressure of having to make up a vocal part on the spot with no words. Like, that's a yikes from me. She did it in less than half a dozen takes. She recorded this melody in just a few tries, and they compiled all of the best pieces into what you hear on the album today. But that's where the ownership dispute came in. In 2004, she actually sued for co-writing credit because of her improvisations of vocal work. Yeah. They settled out of court, but she's officially now credited for the song alongside Richard Wright. Here's a fun fact about that as well. She actually didn't even know that her vocal work had been used for the song. Oh no, she didn't realize they took it? Yeah, so after they were done, the band didn't seem to really be too ecstatic about her work and they paid her just a flat fee of 30 pounds she assumed that her vocal work wouldn't be used and then she was out shopping one day after the album came out and saw it and decided to buy it and when she listened to it she heard herself singing on it it was like whoa (laughs) that would have to be crazy wouldn't it i mean just to randomly find yourself on this record well she did a great job so i totally understand why they kept her i mean like i said iconic vocal work the song is at its core about dying and the great gig in the sky is kind of a tongue-in-cheek way to talk about an afterlife of some sort And here I thought they were just on an airplane. Nope, we went through the airplane part already. (laughs) No, you see, you're on it too literal again. The song begins with a little more spoken word. The voice says, I am not afraid of dying. Any time will do. I don't mind. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it. You've got to go sometime. And then later on in the song, there's a woman that says, I never said I was afraid of dying. So they incorporate that very relevant quote into the song. It starts with this lovely piano and some real subtle guitar, but then the drums kick in and do a little double hit. And that's when Tori comes in with this wail. I mean, I get actual chills on this song. This song really gets me every time. It's so good. (laughs) In the context of the album, it's really, really good. But I think sometimes if you just listen to the song out of any context, she does get a little too into the scream like if you were to roll down your car and listen to this song on the road and someone that didn't know it was to hear it they would think you were a psycho (laughs) yes (laughs) she's way into it but honestly i think it's cool that she can put such prevalent emotion into it without a single word very very expressive vocal and it was all improvised yeah yeah i i think i read that she tried to treat her voice like it was an instrument rather than she was singing she just tried to add something in the way that an instrument would and that really helped her out it's a long song but it ended and i literally said oh it's over already like it's such a great way to end the first side of the record i did not i like the song i wasn't sad when it was over oh i don't know i just like it a lot it's a really transportive song but then you flip over the record b-side and it starts right in with money ching that's right money is the only song on the album to be in the billboard's top 20 it was written by roger waters and you can tell because the song is probably as bassy as it gets for this record it's really good this one's up there for my favorite 
Yeah, it's pretty good. The song starts with a cash register and coin sounds in a loop that the bass starts to play along to in this strange coin loop. Mason was in charge of these sounds, and he made a lot of them by doing things like drilling holes into pennies and threading a string through them, or spinning coins around in a bowl. So that's the source for a lot of these money clinks that you hear at the beginning. This song is in 7-4 time. That's the time signature here. A great time. It's so strange and hard to listen to when you hear it for the first time, especially if you don't know it's coming. It's such an odd time that you don't see often. Not often at all. Woo, 7-4 time! <laughs> yeah, like most songs you could just count along with, you know, the 1-2-3, or a 1-2-3-4. This one you're going to have to go all the way to 7. 1-2-3-4-5-6-7-1-2-3-4. It's so jarring. It's just different than what you're used to. David Gilmore sings on this one, and I love the way they get his vocals sounding. Very, very very echoey, very punchy and powerful. It's a song about greed, of course, and the ways that people acquire and spend money. How they acquire money. Yeah. (laughs) He sings, you get a good job with more pay and you're okay. Money, it's a gas. Grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. New car caviar, four-star daydream. He talks about buying football teams and private planes, and he's so cavalier about all of it, so nonchalant. Easy to be nonchalant when you have money. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, that's the irony of it, isn't it? That these are three of the richest musicians ever. But after the saxophone solo, there's a David Gilmour guitar solo. And he actually played different solos when he did the song live. He would improvise over this solo part. In verse 3, he starts talking about how money is the root of all evil, and even the people that profess to know that money is evil still cling tightly to their own money. And the song ends with more people answering from those question cards, and the question was about the last time they were violent. The card asked whether they were in the right, you know, whether their violence was somehow justified. The first batch of voices says, Yes, I was definitely right. That geezer was cruising for a bruising and other stuff like that. Everybody feels justified in their actions. And then a later one says, I don't know, I was really drunk at the time. But it's just interesting to hear that at the end of the song about money, everyone always feels like they're in the right, and their violence is justified, and it's very self-centric. It's, it's a it's a self-centered viewpoint, kind of. So the next track is the third song in contention for my favorite. Us and Them is an excellent contender for favorite song, too. It's so good, I don't know. I've said that about all these songs, I can't just keep saying it, but it's also good. Us and Them is a song about war and conflict, how everyone is ultimately really similar, but we're forced or conditioned to see things in this us versus them mindset. There's the thing that we're familiar and comfortable with, and then there's a perceived other. In Waters' own words, the first verse is about going to war on how the front line we don't get much chance to communicate with one another because someone else has decided that we shouldn't. The second verse is about civil liberties, racism, and color prejudice, The last verse is about passing a tramp in the street and not helping. So that's kind of the progression of the song, the stages that it goes through. There's this nice dichotomy between us and them, right? Like comparing the differences. Yeah. Well, like even in the first verse where it's like, forward he cried from the rear and the front rank died. The general sat and the lines on the map moved from side to side. It's this whole kind of cynical way of being like, the people who are out there putting their lives on the line and dying aren't the same ones making the decisions got us who are out there trying hard and dying and risking our lives and them who are just sitting back making the decisions from the comfort of their tent. that kind of dichotomy also parallels with all of the different stories that they tell and again it's a song that builds it starts off very simple just us and them kind of echoing and then it builds to this big yeah by the end of the verses this big like cacophony of singing yeah it's true it does it's calming almost 
in his tone, which is a really interesting way to go about a war song, you know? <laughs> yeah. But they do sing, us and them, after all, we're only ordinary men. Me and you, God only knows it's not what we would choose to do. Talking to the enemy, to the other in the war, saying, we don't want to fight each other. The people behind us are making us fight. And then that second part of the verse, yeah, them shifts from the enemy to the ally, the generals that are sending other people out to go and die. Which is an interesting sentiment that I feel like a lot of veterans and people kind of have, right? You hear stories about that kind of stuff where like two people that were on opposite sides of the war got stranded or something together and became brothers or lifelong friends because of the shared experience, even though they were supposed to be enemies, right? It's like there's some sort of shared brotherhoodly camaraderie that goes along with just being the frontline soldier, even though you're on opposite ends of the war. You can at least relate to one another in a way that you can't relate to the generals yeah, that's very true. The second verse, he says that everyone is just getting beat up black and blue, and that anyone who tries to point out that it's a battle of words or some kind of manipulation rather than an actual conflict is silenced by the man with the gun. He's encouraged to come inside the conflict for himself, you know, almost like a way of being conscripted into the war. Like, if you speak out against the war, come fight in it. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's really cool, the second verse, because the war's getting ugly, you know? everybody Everybody's suffering. Everybody's suffering blows in this war. And you have then the people who aren't out there fighting, you know, the poster bearers, the people who are trying to spread the message. But they're be like, hey, wait, we can't stop fighting. Don't you know it's a battle of words? We, it's all about who can withstand the most, kind of, or whatever. And, and then they're like, listen, take a break, relax very common theme you know, this battle words is in an ongoing constant thing there's room for you to come inside and take a load off it's kind of how mm. i interpret the end of that verse yeah that's different than the way i got it where the poster bearer says it's a battle of words in that we're all being tricked into this there's no real reason to fight we're just being told to fight and they're being told to fight us you know it's this battle of people telling people what to do but then the man with the gun comes out and says you know quit talking like that get inside again telling him what to do i mean maybe Oh, I just it's an ambiguous image, I guess. I guess I could see your interpretation. Like he's claiming that like the real battle is amongst like the politicians and the generals, right? And we're just the soldiers out there getting black and blue. And then the people inside the tents, the generals, are being like, Listen, stop saying that. Come join us. If you stop talking, we'll let you in, sort of thing, like shut you up. Yeah. That's kind of how it felt to me. The last verse, they sing down and out, it can't be helped, but there's a lot of it about. It reminds me a lot of money, where they talk about how people are so reluctant to give or donate or help in any way. Like, there's still a lot of problems in the world, but nobody's doing anything about it. It can't be helped. And then they sing this really powerful line, out of the way, it's a busy day, I've got things on my mind. For the want of the price of tea and a slice of bread, the old man died. People are starving to death, and those who have are too preoccupied or too selfish to give to those who have not. It's a heavy line to end the song about getting along with us and them. The next song, though, is another instrumental track. It's called Any Color You Like. No vocals, no spoken word at all. The popular theory is that the title, Any Color You Like, refers to the illusion of choice. It's a statement of, yeah, you could pick whatever color, but you're still going to be stuck with the same thing in the end. Pick any course of life you want. You're going to still only start with a heartbeat and end with Right. Roger Waters says the title was inspired by peddlers in his hometown who would sell things out of the back of their trucks. They would shout things to attract the attention and business of people walking by on the street, you know? Classic peddler move. Yeah. And when someone would buy something, he recalled hearing them say they could get it in any color you like. They're all blue. <laughs> 
So to him, he says, it denotes offering a choice when there is none. And in the context of who's always choosing blue, it feels like no matter what you pick, there's just this underlying prevalent sadness. Yeah. Any Color You Like is sometimes considered another reprise of Breathe in the Air because they actually wrote and recorded it without Roger Waters around. He was gone, so they took his bass line from Breathe in the Air and they transposed it. They changed the key down a step from E minor to D minor, but they used that same bass recording. So if you listen closely, you can really hear the footprint of Breathe on this track. It's essentially the same, or at least a very similar chord progression. But for the most part, I think this is one I almost hesitate to describe for fear of underselling it, you know, or not doing it justice. It didn't really stand out to me. Really? Oh. Wow. It was just kind of one that existed. That's crazy, because this is, I think, one of my favorites. Really? Oh, musically? Absolutely. Interesting. Any color you like. Any color I like. I like this color. I don't know. What I'm going to say is just go listen to this one for yourself. They do so many musical things in here that I can't possibly describe to you in an adequate way. It's three and a half minutes, and it's just one of those things that you have to find out for yourself because you're going to get relatively little from us telling you about it. You just have to hear it with your own ears. But that's any color you like. That brings us to brain damage. It does. And much like the first two songs on this record, brain damage and eclipse... The closing pair are often put together as well. They kind of come as a package deal. Yep. Of the two, I think I like Brain Damage better. Yeah. They're both, I think, pretty great. They're both pretty good. Brain Damage, the band talks about openly, is based around Sid Barrett. For a large part of these lyrics, he's the lunatic. It starts with this keep off the grass verse. You know the signs. You've seen them everywhere. Keep off the grass, stay on the path, whatever. The lunatic is off the path, not following the way of the people. He's in the grass for himself, breaking the rules, but he's lost in his mind and he's free from this boring concrete path. It's an interesting image. This is the song that sneaks in the title of the album. Yeah, it is. For the first time, the chorus... He sings, and if the dam breaks open many years too soon, or, you know, if you start to slip way too early, he says, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. Waters is indicating that he sometimes feels the same way, or is, at the very least, empathetic to Barrett's struggles, because one day he's going to end up on the dark side of the moon with him. I don't know. What, What do you make of the dark side of the moon imagery? So, yeah, I was sitting here thinking about that, and I think it ties into our symbolic interpretation of the album art, right? Uh huh. I think I've kind of put the pieces together, hopefully. If the dark side of the moon represents death, like he's saying, even if you go fully insane and blah, 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 like I'll still reconnect with you in death. Then the rainbow colors of light that are being scattered on the other side of the album would be representations of your life. Like we've already kind of said, no matter what life path you go down, pick any color that's there. So then everything on the other side of the prison would be that straight line would be like coming into being birthed. Like you're born in the triangle and then you shoot out from the triangle. Right. Uh huh. So it's like you're all coming from the same place in the universe, and then you're birthed out into the universe. But then you're all gonna come back on the dark side of the moon when the light, the visible color spectrum, is based off a of light reflecting off of things, it reflects off the moon. But the other side of the moon is dark. That would be death. So there's no light. Yeah, there's no, your light doesn't reflect off of it. It's the whole side of the moon is dark. It's such a subtle metaphor and it's put together so well. All throughout this album, they build on it and build on it and build on it. And you slowly start to add pieces to it and your understanding of the metaphor deepens until you get to this climax in these last two songs and it all just bursts together. And there's a line in the second chorus. He sings, if the band you're in starts playing different tunes. That's the thing that Sid Barrett actually would do towards the end of his time in the band as he was kind of slipping a little bit he would just start playing different songs in the middle of the concert. And it was kind of around that point that they figured it was probably best to let him go. 
That's about all I have to say about Brain Damage specifically. Eclipse, the album closer. Oh boy, what a song. Just like we started with the theatrical overture of sorts with Speak To Me, we have this massive cinematic climax. It's just huge. Very theatrical, very over the top. I think it's the perfect way to end a record of this caliber. Oh, and it's so good. Again, it wasn't one of my favorite songs, but thematically, I think it was the best song. Like, it really brings all the themes that they had, like you said, to a close. 100%. All you touch, all you experience, everything you're running towards, all your money, all your wasted time, all the wars you fought, all your choices. Us versus them, any color you pick, it all builds to this. They all just get eclipsed by the dark side of the moon in their own time. By death, I mean. It will all go away, and that's just that. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. Yeah, I found a quote that I really love. Roger Waters says, The line, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon, is me speaking to the listener, saying, I know you have these bad feelings and impulses because I do too, and one of the ways that I can make direct contact with you is to share with you the fact that I feel bad sometimes. Oh, it's just a good quote. Man. Yeah. The part where it says, There is no dark side in the moon, really. Matter of fact, it's all dark, right? Yeah. And that coupled with the line, but the sun is eclipsed by the moon. Like, I imagine in my head when they said the sun is eclipsed by the moon, they're talking about a lunar eclipse, right? Where the earth gets between the sun and the moon, blocking the moon out, right? Because none of the light can reach the moon. It's because the it's all bouncing off the earth, which would make the entire moon dark, right? Yeah. I think you got that backwards, maybe, but yeah. I don't think so. I think a lunar eclipse. Well, if the sun is eclipsed by the moon, that means the moon is covering up the sun. Which would be illuminating the dark side and making the other side dark yeah kind of backwards from what i think thematically they're going for i imagined it is a lunar eclipse that if the whole moon is going dark it'd have to be a lunar eclipse well the thing about the solar eclipse there is no dark side in the moon really matter of fact it's all dark it's all dark that only happens during a lunar eclipse that's true i i guess there's a well, little... yeah a solar eclipse would just reverse which side is the dark side <laughs> At the end of the day, I just don't think it's a very optimistic way to end the album necessarily. It's just a a resigned way. It's a track that really sees all the themes tied together and it just resigns itself to once again reiterating that life is going to be the way that life is and you're just along for the ride right now. So live it until you're eclipsed by the dark side of the moon. And it comes full circle like we mentioned with that heartbeat slowly fading into nothingness at the end of the album. Yeah, start as a heartbeat and get into heartbeat. Well done. So well done. I mean, what a journey this album is. It's a sonic journey. It's a thematic journey. So that covers every track on the album. I think it's time to get into the final spin. Where we will talk about everything as a whole and, and give it an official spin it score. Now, my score is based on four different weighted categories, the first of which is the music. There is so much good music on this album. <laughs> All of the ways that they use the chords and the melodies to create, like we talked about in Breathe, it feels like a real sigh of relief or relaxation. The way that they use drums and fast-paced arpeggios and on the run to make you feel like you're constantly just on the go and in the madness and chaos of travel. One of these songs is in 7-4 time. Come on! I have to give the music a really high score. Music is getting an almost off the charts 98 for me. 98? Wow, that's higher than I thought it would be. I knew you really liked it, but 98 is pretty dang high. That's almost the perfect. Almost. I don't know much about what this album could do better musically, to be honest. I just just think it's really well executed. Sounds like you really like this album. I do. (laughs) Next, on to lyrics. 
There aren't a ton of lyrics on this album, but they make great use of the ones that they have. All these lyrics are so well constructed. Kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown. You are young and life is long. There's time to kill today. I don't know, pretty much everything we've already mentioned is just a stellar lyric. They use such powerful images in such concise ways. So for the consistency of the themes and the quality of the lyrics, I'm giving them a 97. 97, again, very high, almost perfect. Almost, yeah. Instruments and production. This is another category that I think this album just nails. Like we talked about, so much clever panning, so much heavy delay and reverb on things, the synthesizer loops, the reverse guitar played with a microphone stand, the echoes on David Gilmour's voice when he kind of yells sings some of these parts. I think the production on this album is pretty much outstanding, and I'm giving it a 97 as well. That's a number I can agree with. The production on this is outstanding. Okay. Uh, everything you said, 100%. I can agree with your 97 here. I'm actually a little bit surprised that you agree with that 97, but I'm happy with it. And vibe for me on this one is a perfect 100. This album sucks you in right from the start. A perfect 100. Yeah. You look at the album cover on this album. You start listening to it, you're instantly there. I mean, these songs are giving me chills. The themes are so well woven together. They are amazingly put together. I don't know if I would ever agree with a perfect score, but it should be very high. I just think no album probably that's ever going to be made in my lifetime is ever going to be closer to a perfect score than this one. So it's a pretty flawless vibe. All of those high scores, what's that calculate out to? Great, so... To remind you, music is a 98, lyrics are a 97, production is a 97, the vibe is a perfect 100. So I sent this off to our crackpot math department, really smart team there, and our excellent math department sent me back and said my score was a 99.0 for this album. 99. One point away from a perfect score. Is this your highest scoring album? Actually, it's not my highest scoring album. There are three more that place higher than this one. Oh, So this is number four, then? This is number four overall. Three things got above a 99. Yes, and I don't expect that number four to change. Can I ask what? You may ask what. May I not tell what? Listen to the podcast and find out. I'm sure we'll talk about them sometime. I want to know what beat this out for you, because I think you're going to, much like how I hated some of your scores in earlier episodes, I don't think you're going to like my score on this one. Oh. Not if you're given this spot number four with a 99 out of 100. Okay, okay. Well, now I got to hear what your score is because that, I'm a little, I thought you liked it better. I don't know. We'll see. What's your score? Well, all right. So things I want to preface this with is, like I said, I agreed with a lot of what you said. I had a lot of positive things to say about this album. But I just kind of give it a straight up or down out of 10 score, you know, based on how I felt off of one listen. One single listen. Yes, you did one listen of Dark Side of the Moon. (laughs) And this is your score. Also, I think just my music listening habits in general, for those of you who are new or have forgotten, are I typically only listen to singles. I just put on a mixtape of random things and listen to it. I don't really do albums. So I think I was a little pre... I I, I was like, I I feel like I was kind of almost set up to not enjoy this as much as maybe it deserved. Because it's a long-form concept album. Sure. 
as much as I can appreciate, I mean, I love the themes that how they were the tie. I I love that kind of stuff. But if I'm comparing this to like other albums we've done and how much I would want to re-listen to this album, this one not so much. I don't know. I just don't see myself listening to Dark Side of the Moon as an album. You know, there are specific songs in there I like that'll get added to the mixed bag of songs, but the album itself didn't speak to me as much as like the Dua Lipa one or the Casey Musgrave one. The first know? track is literally called Speak to Me. <laughs> How could it not speak to you? I'm sorry. All that being said, my score is not like low. Don't get me wrong. It's just not going to be as high as I think maybe a lot of our listeners and you yourself are going to think it should be. So with all that being said, I'm giving this one a seven out of ten. Seven? <laughs> You're giving it's it a seven? Getting a seven out of ten. Okay. Which oh again, my gosh, <laughs> I know that sounds bad when you gave it a ninety-nine out of a hundred, but that is only three away from a perfect steal. So it's still pretty high up there in terms of numbers I could have given it. I'm floored. I am a little bit too, because I love classical rock music, right? 70s, 80s music. This kind of music is typically what I like. Just the songs themselves, while thematically and produced really well, and the theme of the album was awesome. It was, you said, just the overall tones of it was great. Listening to it for just listening to it as music, it just doesn't do it for me as some of the other ones. Okay, but you know I can't just let you leave it at seven. I know you need to attach a unit to it so we can properly scale it with all your other rankings uh this one's gonna get seven bad transformer movie ideas out of ten for me oh so like the transformers franchise as a whole yeah pretty much you're giving this one transformers franchise. <laughs> that always feels like an undersell i i feel bad about that one uh-huh, you should <laughs> i guess that's a i thought this was gonna be this, we were having a really good episode and i'm leaving it disheartened <laughs> We were, and I loved it. I everything. Listen, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I gotta. It falls where it falls. I mean, do you remember, audience? Do you remember when you listened to this album for the first time? What would you have given it out of 10 on your first <laughs> listen? I'm just curious. Well, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, despite how we kind of crashed and burned at the end there. <laughs> Oof. Listen, the episode started with a heartbeat and it ended with a heartbeat. Poetic. Really poetic, honestly. If you like what you heard, or you didn't, you can check us out on our website, spinitpod.com. Type it into your browser, and you'll get all kinds of fun new Spinit content directly to your eyeballs. All the episodes are there. That's right. All the episodes, all the info. We're also on all the social media platforms, at SpinItPod on Twitter and at SpinItPod Official on Instagram. Thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. Looking forward to seeing you back next week when we talk about another album that is definitely not Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> Something. We're going in a different direction. What are we doing next? We don't know. I do. Do you want me to tease it? A little nugget of tease. I haven't had one of those in a while. The next album we're talking about, again, very far from Dark Side of the Moon, but we do like to swing wide on this podcast to talk about everything. I'll tease our next episode by saying the artist has very close ties to the Transformers franchise. Oh? Yes. And that's where I'll leave it. That's the tease. I don't know. Tune in next week to find out. That's right. For more Spin It Transformers content. Coming at you next week. Spin It, your favorite Transformers (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Just kidding. We've transformed from a music podcast to a crappy robot car movie podcast. Yeah, and on that note, I think I'm just going to force this out. I'm going to keep spinning everybody. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Yonk, yonk.